So the kids are getting ready to go to camp, right? And I'm, and I'm walking around out there, and there's these three little boys standing in a circle. I mean, they all got to be like six years old. So this one little boy's all, hey, if you could have any sports car in the world, what would you want? And this other little boy doesn't miss a beat, totally excited, goes, Ford Fiesta. Apparently, some of your kids need education about what a sports car is. But hey, you're going to have a cheap sweet 16, all right? 200 bucks, barely runs, way to go. I just want you to know that when Jeremiah broke his finger, I was driving the boat. It's what happens. It's what happens. And then at the, uh, John came up to drive the second half of camp, and at the end of that, he, I think he got bored and just started like throwing people off as well. Speaks very dear to my heart, so just... Lift it up. Just show him. There you go. There it is, right there. He plays cello, five pins in the finger. It's his own dumb fault. He held on too long. There's a point where you let go. When you're upside down and flipping around, let go of the tube. Just let go. All right, uh, one thing, we got a newcomer party coming up in two weeks. If you are newer to Element, interested to get to know, know some people, sign up in the back at the Welcome Center. You'll come, you'll get some dessert, get hopped up on sugar. We'll meet you, then we'll send you home, you can crash. It'll be awesome. We just, actually, if you have kids, leave them with the sitter, come to it, get all hopped up, and then go home and crash just like them. Get all irritated. Oh, come down my sugar high. It'll be just like your kids. It'll be amazing. Or not. Whatever. Why don't you stand with me, reading God's Word. We'll get started. It says Romans chapter 12, verse 15, it says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that we as a people would be those who trust you fully for what comes into our lives. And that when things are unexplained, we would weep with those who weep. We would rejoice with those who rejoice and fully be a people who honor you in all that we do. Amen. MC. All right, so this is week three of our series on the stupid summer. Uh, this, again, is topical. It's not expository. Topical means we're covering topics. In this case, it is our own stupidity. So we're going to cover that for 13 weeks. Well, actually 11 now, since this is now the, the third week. Uh, these are stupid things Christians believe that aren't true. Again, we thought about calling these spiritual urban legends, but we just thought stupid summer sounded better because, we t- you know, we tell a lot of your kids not that stupid's a bad word, so you can just go home and explain that. Why I get to say it and they don't, it's great. It's great. So last week, uh, here, here's my warning. Last week was a lot of fun. Uh, cracked a lot of jokes, talked about our conscience, made a lot of fun of ourselves. This week is actually going to be much more serious uh, because there are some things that we as Christians believe that have implications for the freedom that God intends for you and I to live within. And sometimes those consequences come about because we believe certain things the Bible doesn't teach and that can be disastrous in our lives. Uh, sometimes people write off God for not following through on a promise that he never actually made. Uh, People despair after they take a leap of faith into something that God never intended. You could probably name a a few things Christians believe that aren't true, or maybe even some things that people believe Christians believe that aren't actually true. Sure, we're just stupid. So over the next few weeks, you got to hear what we say as we talk through this with an open mind and an open heart. And today we're going to cover this idea that God causes everything. Because he does and he doesn't, depending on how you look at it. And I'm a good reformed guy. I believe God is sovereign over everything. But this is really bad when it comes to certain areas and trying to you know, make God the one who's on the hook for certain things. Uh, I have a friend. I love him dearly. But a couple weeks before I wrote this message, he found a lump in his throat. It started growing at an exponential rate 
rate. And so they go to the doctor and they find out it's cancer. Uh, just about a month ago, I have another friend. He's got pneumonia going on. Can't figure out why in the world that he's got all this stuff going on inside of him. And they take some you know, bone marrow and find out he has leukemia. And so they, both these people choose prayer support in their lives because they don't choose silence. They don't want to hide it. They want everybody around them to know. And sometimes when that takes place, encouragement is amazing. But also sometimes encouragement can be a burden because sometimes encouragement isn't really encouragement at all. Because some people will come along and they will try to help and they will send you articles and books and websites and special diets and supplements. All that have the promise to heal or slow down the spread of this terrible disease. And there's a subtle message that if you just took these earlier and followed this advice, you wouldn't be in the mess that you are today. But I will tell you, nobody has all the time to read all the articles and all the websites or enough girth to drink all the drinks or eat all the stuff or suppository, all the things, suppository, all these, all these supplements. And what you learn is when tragedy strikes your life, the Apostle Paul was brilliant when he says in Romans 12, 15, just rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep because that can be a really great gift. And sometimes all the happy talk about how cancer is a blessing in disguise, it's part of God's blessing, it's just dumb. Because really, cancer is a piece of garbage that's trying to trick your body into killing itself. And people with cancer feel like, this is God's blessing, how about you bless somebody else? You know, just don't bless me, go bless that other guy over there. And people who don't have cancer look at it and go, oh, that's God's blessing. Well, they don't really want God to bless them in the same way, right? They're like, just keep blessing that guy and, and, and not me. And these people say a lot of trite things, like God is up to something, God doesn't make mistakes, you must have a special relationship with God for him to entrust you with this, uh, won't it be great to see how God uses this? Everything happens for a reason. And all of those things, in a sense, are true. God is up to something. God doesn't make mistakes. And no matter what happens, God is sovereign, and he is king of the universe, and he is good. But to talk about this this thing that God causes everything as a defense or the right way to talk about this, I think is a bad understanding. Because it doesn't necessarily mean that everything that comes into your life that God allows is actually good. God did not cause Lucifer to rebel. He did not cause Eve to eat the fruit in the garden. God did not cause David to sleep with Bathsheba. He did not cause Cain to kill Abel. He did not force the crowd to cry out for Barabbas. And he did not force the Romans to crucify Jesus. And those who did that bear full responsibility for their actions. I mean, you can't blame God. Adam tried it after the fall, and it just didn't work. And I think we get this because of a weird misunderstanding and a warped view of Romans 8.28. Romans 8.28 says this, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And people think that that implies that everything that happens is good. And that's not what the verse actually says. It doesn't say everything that happens is good. It says that God works in all things. That's what it tells you. What it says is the enemy's best shot cannot stop God's plan. That God's will will come about and bring about his purposes no matter what happens. And that is a far cry from saying everything is good. Now open your Bibles to the book of Job. Because in order to understand this, I'm going to talk about Job a lot. Uh, Timothy Keller writes this. He says, there is nothing more certain than that you are going to suffer. There's your happy thought for the day from Element. You're welcome. Right there. You know, we, when we suffer, we ask, you know, why me? Why this? Why now? What's going on? And I think there's really no piece of literature ever written that addresses this question of why. With the, with the philosophical and the intellectual integrity and the depth of emotional realism and the spiritual focus as the book of Job. 
Now, the book of Job, it's mostly a lyrical poem, which causes people to ask, well, is it real? Is it metaphor? How does it all go together? Well, it could be either. You know, we're not really sure, but that's not the point of Job. The point of Job is God's relationship to what happens throughout Job's life, that God is sovereign and he is in control. And so Job starts out as a conversation between God and Satan. Then it's a conversation between Job and his friends. And then at the end, it's not really a conversation between God and Job. It's more like God just shows up and he talks at Job. Hey, it's really kind of funny because Job's like, answer me. And God's like, shut up. I'm going to tell you what's going on, right? And so right out of the gate, the book of Job tells you three things in regard to suffering in our lives. Number one is this. You have to avoid pat or trite answers. You have to avoid them. And the second thing is we need to embrace living without an answer to this why question. And the third thing is we need to anticipate what the final answer is. Now, when things that are horrendous come into our lives, a religious person tends to look at these things and say, why is God punishing me? What am I doing wrong? Oh, I just need a little bit more faith. And so they try and get very moral and push more of the right buttons, and maybe God's going to bless me. We think it's like a tit-for-tat kind of thing. If you're good, God blesses you, and if you're not good, well, then he doesn't bless you. That is stupid. It is bad theology. It is horrible. The other side of this is cynicism. Religious people, you know, they see suffering as a punishment. Secular people see it as just it's the randomness of life. People who don't believe in, believe in God say, well, there's a reason for suffering because God doesn't exist. Or if he is real, he's incompetent or he's completely indifferent to what's going on in your life. So cynicism believes nothing's in charge. And both of these are only trite and pat answers. The book of Job starts out and tells you that these are both wrong. They are spiritual dead ends. But it also tells you God is not the cause of the suffering in Job's life. So when you get to Job chapter 1... Satan's kind of in this thing. He's running around the earth, looking at all the people. He shows up to God and says, your people are terrible. See, we still have the same problem today, right? We're all just horrible. And he shows up to say, your people are terrible. And this is what God says in Job 1.8. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? And what the devil says, the accuser says back to God, is he's not so great. If you hurt him, then you would see. And God says, okay, you can do this and not that. And Satan runs out to attack Job. Now, many people read this and think, well, why is God playing the game with Satan over Job's life? But this misses the brilliance of what's actually happening in the text. This is philosophically, it is narratively getting across a point of what we would call God's asymmetrical relationship to evil and suffering. It is not yin and yang. It is not a little bit of evil and a little bit of good. It's all got to go together. God is not symmetrical in regard to evil and suffering. He is asymmetrical. He was all on one side, the good side. And how do we know this? Because this way to go get Job, it is actually Satan's idea, and Satan is the one who causes it. And so what happens in the book of Job is it's showing that when God made the world, he didn't put disease in it or natural disasters. It wasn't a place where death or windstorms, which will happen and take all of Job's children out. It's not a place where that would come and blow over houses and kill people. It became that way when we turned away from God and caused all of creation to fall. We rebuild against God and the fabric of the world then begins to unravel around us. We unleash these forces in, in a sense. And to some degree, we are still in the backwash of Adam's sin and our own. It's a fallen world. And we try to give the fallen world a name to make it better. We say, oh, it's Mother Nature. Well, that's just what it is. We haven't noticed Mother Nature's been PMSing since the fall. She's always mad about something. Can I say that in church? All right, just checking. You know, so on one, one hand, we say, well, God is not actively involved in causing all the issues that came into Job's life as he loses his family and his children and his livestock. But, and this is also a big but, God is in absolute control. 
It is not Satan and God on opposite sides and, oh, who's going to win in this battle? It is God in absolute control. He permits it. He says, very well, but he also limits it. And he says, you can do this and not that. Why? Because God only allows Satan to accomplish the exact opposite of what he is trying to accomplish. Satan gets enough rope, metaphorically, to hang himself. And so what Satan is doing is trying to get a result by doing certain things in Job's life. He wants Job discredited so he can say, Ha, I told you, God, you're wrong. And you don't even have to really read the whole book of Job to think and understand. You know, Job is probably the most noble figure who ever lived. Thousands of years later, we still read the book of Job to get wisdom out of it. I mean, thousands of years later, we meet and talk about his life. People's lives have been changed by their understanding of his suffering and his humanity and all the reasons behind it. And so Satan is allowed by God to bring evil into Job's life. Why? How can God do this? Again, he only allows certain things in certain ways that actually defeat Satan's real intention. Satan, gets in the end, gets the exact opposite of what he wanted. And so what the text in Job is telling us is that this might be how God actually works in our lives. God hates suffering, God hates evil, but he's still in control. It is asymmetrical, it is one-sided. He didn't make it happen, but he is permitting it. Now, sure, he could stop it, but you cannot say that God loves to see people suffer. You can't say that. He permits it in our lives to the degree that it defeats Satan's intent in our lives and only to the degree that it defeats it. But also, Job never finds out about this, ever. At the end of the book, God speaks to Job, and God never, ever brings this up. He never says to Job, well, Job, you know what? It was hard, but let me explain. You know, throughout the rest of time, people are going to read this book called Job, and they're going to be encouraged and strengthened in the midst of their suffering. Your example will encourage people for thousands of years. He never does that. You know what happens? God shows up when Job's all, why, why, why? God shows up in Job 38, too, and this is what God says. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? God shows up and says, Who do you think you are? I'm God. I know what I'm doing. You need to trust me. And we do need to trust him. Now, the week I was writing this, I told you this last week. I met with a girl. She was 22 years old. She got pregnant by a guy who had two other kids by two other women. And she says, I'm not sure why God did this to me. And again, I don't think it was God that was doing it to her. That can be taken multiple ways, by the way. Okay, so. But what she told me in our conversation, I'm like, you're not the Virgin Mary. I, I get that, you know. But she was so steep in this idea that God causes everything that it had never occurred to her that this child was, was the result of her own sin. And I'm not saying the child is evil. Don't mistake me at all. The child is a blessing. It's, it's a very good thing. She has now had this child. It's, it's, it's great. It's great. But now that she was saying, I want to follow Jesus, she's, she's like, well, God must do something I like now, right? See, it's not symmetrical. God is God, he is sovereign, he does what he wants. And the consequences of sin can be brutal even in the presence of God's mercy and grace. I mean, look at the story of David and Bathsheba and their adultery in the scriptures. Yes, after it happened, David was forgiven. Yes, God still used him to pen scriptures. Yes, God brought some good out of the union. He brings about this kid named Solomon. But would have been better if the sin didn't take place at all. Well, their firstborn child died in infancy. David spends the rest of his life at war after this. And his family becomes a dysfunctional mess. None of which seems to follow the logic that God has a wonderful plan for your life. It's like a guy who gets, you know, is a drug dependent. And then all of a sudden he gets away from that. But then he contracts AIDS or hep C. The onslaught of the disease is not a good thing, and it's not God's blessing in disguise. It's a consequence to past actions, actions that God offers forgiveness for and grace for, but actions you're still paying for. 
Romans 8.28 doesn't mean the progression of a disease is a good thing. It means that no matter how bad things get, God's ultimate eternal purpose in a person's life will never, ever be stopped. That's what it means. And a moralist says you're not living right, you need more faith. A cynic says you suffer because life is a crapshoot and God's out to lunch. Those are all pat answers. They're all trite. All those answers try to do is seek to keep ourselves in control. The cynic says, live how you want, you owe God nothing, and the moralist says, do this and this, and God has to bless you. No, that's not how it works. The Bible says both are false. We are to be a people who serve God even if we never know the answer why. Timothy Keller writes this, Therefore you hold on to mystery, you do not worry about an answer, and you stay in relationship with the God you can't control. This means that when things come into our lives, whether they're things that you know, are consequences for things that we have done or maybe things we don't even have an answer for, they just hit us like cancer or something like that, we still embrace that we probably will never know the answer to why we are suffering. And the truth in the backside is we don't actually need to know. See, in the book of Job, when God is talking to, the, to Satan, the accuser in this, God says, Job fears me. Now, in our culture, we think, oh, fear is a terrible thing. Fear is awful. Perfect love casts out all fear and all that. But in this connotation, it's actually positive. It's this inward awe and wonder. What God essentially says is, Job serves me out of love. And what Satan says is, no, no, he doesn't. He serves you because you give him stuff. That's why he serves you. He doesn't love you for you. He loves you for himself. And you know what the accuser just did there? He puts his finger right on the pulse of modern Christianity. I cannot tell you how many times i talk to people that, that come into Element and they have their own agenda. Oh, you need to do this and this and this, and then we don't do their agenda, they call us names and leave. Not normally in that order. They normally leave and then hop on Facebook or Twitter and then call us names. We're like, what the heck? You know, whatever. And we're always trying to, let's block them from our Facebook page. <laughs> you know, whatever, stuff like that. I don't, I don't know if you've ever had a job. You befriend somebody that maybe just got the job with you. They're a little lower on the, on the totem pole, and you spend some time with them trying to help train them. Then eventually they realize you're not going to help them to move to the next step and get what they want, so they take off and then, and then leave. What that tells you, you know, you weren't being befriended. You're being networked. Again, we have people that come here all the time. Oh, hey, you need to, you know, play these sermons for people and play these tapes and do this course. And we're like, I don't think so, because we're not being befriended. We're being networked and all this. Ladies, how about this? I'll, I'll just give you when I say this all the time. But how about you make a guy marry you before you sleep with them? It will weed out the rabble. It will, okay? Because a lot of times, you're being networked. Guys are nice. They'll say nice things. But many times, if you don't sleep with them, they will be gone. They will be gone. So you make them wait, because he didn't love you for you. He loved you for what he was going to get from you. And Satan says, it's not just men who are like this. He says, all your human beings are like this. And when Satan looks at people who say, oh, you know, I love God, I trust God, or I love others, he thinks we're all liars. He thinks that we're all in it for ourselves. This means we must learn to love God for who he is in himself alone. And the way that typically only happens in our lives is when we begin to suffer. Now, was Satan right about Job? Yes and no, he was. In, in the first chapter, he loses his money, his family, but he bows down and continues to worship God. He says, things aren't important, God is. Round one, Job, ding, ding, it's, it's right there. But as the book goes on, you see that there is self-centeredness in Job. And as the book continues, you see that Job doesn't love God just for God alone. You know, and the way that God makes Job into the person that we know of him today is through the suffering that comes into his life that he never knows why. I mean, almost everyone who I have spoken to about suffering has a traumatic event in their life say, if I just knew why, if I could just say, you know, in 10 years from now, this will be the result, that would mean that you are suffering for what you are going to get. And the only way we're to be sure we're serving God for him alone is when we're getting nothing. And many times, in fact, we get the exact opposite. 
of that. You know, if we want to be the opposite of the people Satan says that we are, in Job it tells you many times you suffer and you just don't know why. It all becomes about love. I mean, God says that. My servant Job loves me. And what Satan does is he writes Tina, Tina Turner's song 4,000 years before she does and says, what's love got to do got to do with it? It's a second hand emotion. You know, how about the Princess Bride? Twoo, whoa. It means nothing, you know. C.S. Lewis writes this book called The Screwtape Letters. And in The Screwtape Letters, it's about an older demon talking to a young, younger demon, trying to teach this younger demon how to tempt people away from the path of Christ. And all throughout that, what the demons keep saying is that there's no such thing really as love. And yet on the backside of that, they know the real reason that Jesus has his people go through the ringer is that he says he wants to turn them into free lovers. People not bound to selfishness, not bound to what they're going to get out of things. And what we must be a people who do is we must begin to distinguish between what God allows and what God causes, what God permits versus what God prefers. I mean, we probably all know a family who went through the whole foreclosure mess, right? Somebody somewhere, we know somebody connected to that, like, oh, they lost their home due to foreclosure. Uh, maybe they took out a loan they couldn't afford or, or whatever. I know one family uh, who got a loan. It's not anybody in this room. Not you. Don't worry. Maybe it is you, but I don't know. I don't know if it's you, okay? But anyway, so I, I know one family got a loan they couldn't afford by embellishing. That's a really nice way of saying lying, okay? I guess when they're handing out loans like candy. It's like, oh, hi. Oh, you want a loan? Sure. Buy a house. You know, that's what they're handing them out. And so the economy falters. All hell begins to break, break loose. And so I have another Christian friend that I know that walks up to these people and says, don't worry. You're in God's hands. He's not going to let you down. God always has something better in mind. And that is false comfort, you know, because the family had lied and it caught up to them. I mean, God did have something better in mind if you ask me. You know what it was? Honesty. Honesty. That's something better. And, and tragedy happens many times in our lives because we make dumb, self-centered decisions, and our decisions on the backside have consequences. I mean, if you pick the wrong stock, it can ruin your whole portfolio. If you pick the wrong manager for your business, it can ruin your business. If you pick your nose in public, it can ruin your social standing. Sometimes. And God doesn't just jump in and remove all the consequences of every stupid decision we make. In Proverbs 19, 2 and 3, I love this. It says, desire without knowledge is not good, and whoever makes haste with his feet misses his way. When a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. When a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. See, the good news of the gospel is not that God stops us from making a whole bunch of dumb decisions in our lives or that he will fix everything that we break. It is that he has promised to continue to work to our eternal good no matter how many and short-sighted decisions we make along the way. He has promised to always be good. Again, whether it's something we don't understand that just came into our lives or something that we caused, we are called to stay in relationship with the God we can't control and embrace the mystery of not knowing why we are suffering and understand that can actually help draw us into loving Jesus for him alone. In the book of Job, Job starts very well. The end of uh, chapter 1, he says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And some people read that and think, well, that's just stoicism then. You know, oh, all the evil comes in, all the terrible stuff. We're like, oh, okay, I'll just take it. That Job tears his clothes. He screams in pain. He doesn't like what's going on. You go to the book of Psalms. Two-thirds of the book of Psalms are Psalms of Amen. It's like, God, why is this going on? It's okay to cry out why. It's okay to acknowledge the pain and things that are going on. But in the end, Job doesn't hold on to his things. He says he came vulnerable and helpless. And no matter how much he doesn't like it, he's going to leave the exact same way. 
This is why a theology of grace is so central to suffering. If you build your life on your things, if you think the things in your life are going to make you happy and make you you, if, if your job or your stuff or your body is, is all these things that make you you, suffering is going to pull you away from who you are meant to be. But if your life is built on Jesus Christ, you can like your health and you can like your money and like your job and like your friends. But if the ultimate status is relationship with him, suffering comes in and will actually pull you deeper into your source of joy. And that is the reason that Job eventually becomes Job. But after chapter 1, almost for the rest of the book, Job doesn't look like the Job that we think. I mean, we have a lot more resources than he, he did. We can look at the entire, entirety of his life and say, oh, I know who Job was. But for a lot of his life, he didn't look like the Job that we think. Satan comes to God and says, Job doesn't really love you. You know he's done that somewhere else? You know where he's done that? To you and I. Satan comes to us in the garden and he says, God doesn't really love you. Adam and Eve say, we shouldn't eat from that tree because God told us not to because he loves us. And the servant says, come on, what has love got to do got to do with it? It's a second-hand emotion. So that's better than the first time, right? Yeah. Okay, whatever. It's like, he's using you. That tree is good. Just look at it. He's trying to keep you down. Tim Keller writes this. When Satan said bad things to God about us, there was some truth in them, but God didn't accept it. But when Satan said bad things about God to us, though they were completely false, we accepted and believed it. See, the lie of Satan today is that if you give your life wholly over to Jesus, he's going to crush you. You will just never, ever be happy. That, That God doesn't really understand you and that God doesn't really love you. And that is a lie. But it is still sunk into the heart of every single human being. It is why when suffering comes, we automatically say, God, why are you doing this? And we think the worst of who God is. We cannot handle suffering because we have believed the lie of Satan. That God doesn't really love his people. And in most cases, you know, pinning everything on God just leads to unjustified anger at God. I mean, we we all know people who want nothing to do with Jesus because somewhere, somebody at some point did something to them in their lives, and they blame God for it. We all know people like that. And a lot of times, we as Christians proclaim things about God that actually aren't even true, and we're just giving the enemy more and more ammunition. And by believing this, this urban legend, this stupid summer topic that God causes everything, can lead to extreme irresponsibility on our part. Because, hey, it doesn't matter what you do or what kind of butthole you are to others or how you abuse those around you. God's going to patch it up because God made you you, right? No! Yeah, right. No! No, if you're a jerk, you need to change that. That's got to be different. I mean, I have seen people step out thinking something was faith and it's just stupidity. Oh, hey, I'm going to spend my whole paycheck on lottery tickets because God told me I'm going to win the lotto. I didn't win the lotto. What's wrong with God? I'll tithe some, you know, seriously. Seriously. I have seen parents abandon kids, husbands leave their spouses, churches hire idiots, you know, always saying, well, God's going to bail us out if we're wrong. And when their decisions, all these decisions turn into chaos, who do they blame? God. Every single time. Now, there are numerous examples of where God comes in and takes something bad and makes it something good. That's why you keep looking at the book of Job. But Job never understood why he suffered. He never got it. Which I think for you and I, always we must take all the stuff that happens in the Scripture and always point to the person of Jesus Christ. Because in understanding our suffering unexplained, the biggest thing we need in our lives to, to help us to understand this is proof that God actually loves us. And how do we know that? Because centuries after Job, Satan attacks a true innocent. He attacks Jesus. And where Job and us feel abandoned, Job and us never truly are. See, Jesus was abandoned because of our sin. He was. 
Jesus chose the path that we so seldom take in our lives. This is the path of obedience, even as it leads to very hard places. I think Jesus is the only one who ever suffered and knew exactly why he was suffering. And when life falls apart, there is something better than a silver lining. It is trusting the path of of what Jesus put you and I on. Obedience follows the truth, even when it hurts. It doesn't return evil for evil. It is thankful when there isn't much to be thankful for at all. It walks with integrity when no one else does. It does the right thing when the right thing doesn't even turn out so well. See, God doesn't promise everything in this life works out the way that we want. But he has promised that he will never leave us and he will never forsake us. And we must, in our lives, stop calling the enemy's best shot as God's doing. We must stop calling evil good. Because Jesus is truly the only person who ever served God out of love for nothing. And why did he do it? For us. And that is the proof that God loves us. Because when Jesus died on the cross, it was him or it was us. And he said, I'll do it. And it was him. And that shows to you that Satan was the liar. He has always been the liar. See, Jesus' death didn't get him anything. He already had everything. He had all glory and power and honor. See, he didn't love you and I to get something out of us. He loves us for who he is in himself. Which means we must be a people who love him for who he is in himself. And instead of trying to make up some crazy theology that everything is going to be okay, we must remember to avoid all the trite and pat answers. We've got to walk with people as they embrace living without an answer to the question why. But we must always point to the ultimate and final answer because in the end, everything ends up being about Jesus. We must understand that. I can't tell you how many times when we talk to people, it's like, oh, I just want an answer, I want an answer. But what if there's not an answer? I mean, what if there's not? We all feel like when we sit with someone who's suffering, we've got to have a reason. Here, let me tell you why. Well, this is what's happening in your life, and, and, and here you go. You know, we want to, sometimes you just got to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice and sit there and say, sometimes, you know, we don't know the answer why, but we trust that God is ultimately good in all things because everything comes down to who Jesus is and what he intends in our lives. And so we trust him for all things. This is one of the reasons we come to communion. Because in communion, we understand that Jesus, who is the only one who ever understood truly why he was suffering, I mean, he gets all of us, which probably would, that's, that's like less than like even. Like we're like on the negative side of that, and yet he gets us anyway. It's kind of crazy, you know. That's why we break that cracker like Christ's body is broken for us. You know, because his body was broken for you and I. You dip in the wine of the grape, it reminds of his blood that was shed for you and I so that we can be this people who understand that in the end, God has an ultimate purpose in all things. And we may never know what it is, but he does. And so we trust him in all that he does. The band's going to come up. They're going to do a couple songs. And as they do, we invite you guys to take communion. There'll be some deacons and elders in the back. And if you need prayer, if you are going through something that you don't understand, and you're just like, God, why? They would love to pray with you. I mean, they're probably not going to have all the answers in the world, but they can pray with you and walk with you and, and weep with you. you know, and, and in the midst of all that, it, it's not just taking all the sad things that we have always. It's, it's also the rejoicing part. You know, this, this is why there's always food and stuff in the back, because we intend for you guys to connect to each other, because you need to be in a community of people. One of the things Job had uh, in, in his life is he had some friends. After he starts to suffer, his friends show up. They weren't the best friends in the world because they gave him some really horrible theology. You know, but, but the first part of that, they showed up and they sat with him while he wept. And, they, and actually, later Jewish traditions has this thing called sitting shivas, which means sitting sevens, where you sit down with somebody over a period of seven days and you just weep and mourn with them. You don't say anything, you just sit with them. That comes out of the book of Job. 
because his friends were brilliant in their silence. It's when they started talking it was horrible, <laughs> you know, because they tried to give him answers. Oh, Job, this is your fault. Oh, you're just doing something stupid. Oh, you know, and they're trying to give him all these answers rather than just saying, you know what, trust God in the midst of this. We may not know why, but we're going to trust him because he's good, and we will walk with you through this. And so, you know, we try and connect you guys all the time in community with other people and gospel communities. And if you're not in one and you'd like to be in one, sign up. And you can also, you don't have to weep. You can also rejoice. You've got something great going on. Rejoice about that and share that so everybody can laugh and go, yay, that's great. My life sucks, but great for you. You know, whatever, you know, <laughs> you, you figure it out. It's also offering boxes on the side of all in the back and we give because God gave so much to us giving as part of our worship. So you have the opportunity for that every single week. Guys, you must remember, uh, God is good. Even when we don't understand, you know, the suffering that comes in, you know, the ultimate good was shown in the person of Christ who lived and died and rose from the dead for you and I. And so we trust him with our lives because it proves that he is good. Let's pray. This morning, Father, we thank you for being a God who has saved us and sought us and redeemed us. And Father, many times we do go through things in our lives that we don't know the answer to. And and we just want to know because we feel like if we knew the answer, then it would make it all okay. But God, quite frankly, maybe sometimes we wouldn't even like the answer. And we simply need to be a people who trust you, to be you. So today, change our hearts into people who are those who trust you in all things. The explained things and especially the unexplained things. And that you would also teach us to come alongside other people around us who are going through suffering or going through immense joy. Just come alongside them and rejoice or weep with them. To speak a lot of brilliance in just our humanity being with them. And we ask that we would understand the ultimate gift of Jesus. Showing and proving to us that you have always had a plan and always had a purpose. And that you love us many times when we are so unlovable. And we ask that you would bring peace like rivers our way. And that no matter what happens, we'd be a people who say and sing, it is well with our soul. Because it is you that we live for and you that we trust. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.